So uh, today's handout, if you don't have one, is the Romans 3, 19 through 28 questions. And uh, we're going to be starting today on page 68 and moving forward. We're going to be starting on page 68 and moving forward. And a new handout for today is uh, Romans 3, 19 through 28 questions. Okay? For those of you that didn't notice, every week I write up here a web address uh, because... I'd like for it to be a place if you have internet access and you know how to steer your computer, that you would go there and learn. Plenty to learn at those places. So this is a really good one right here. By the way, if you need book recommendations, this is the website right here. So instead of reading some of that garbage you find on the shelves and the... uh, (laughs) <laughs> the uh, local supermarket or the local bookstore or possibly even a local Christian bookstore. <laughs> this would be a great place to go get a book recommendation for some good material to read. Another thing I want to mention is we're handing out these free audio CDs. So far there's been three of them. There is a copy of every single one of these three back there on the table. All you got to do is take it and go listen to it. These are recorded in CD audio format. So just a regular CD player is all you need to, to, to hear this. Okay? There's three of them. The, one we, the two that we gave out last week are on the text of Romans 3... 19 and following, which is where we're going to be starting today. So those are kind of helpful a lot in that regard. And the other thing is there is some book recommendations for the topics that we're studying. Also, there on the back table, if you just sign your name, we'll get you a copy of the book. And uh, there's a suggested donation there for those of you who are taking advantage of the books. Anybody enjoying the book so far? Yeah? Good. I've heard a few people mentioning that. Okay. Okay. With that, let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we honor you and we bless you and we thank you for the privilege, God, that we have to come into this place and to worship you. Lord, even to know your name and to know the name of your Son, Jesus, God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the precious blood of Jesus and for the good news concerning his sacrifice for our redemption. We pray, God, that as we look into your word today, that you would teach us, that you would guide us and instruct us of the value of these things. God, that we would rightly understand how you have reconciled us to yourself through the blood of his cross. Our Lord, through his perfect life that you have given to us a righteousness like the noonday sun, God. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage us to be good gospel ministers. And Lord, to rightly understand this message about Jesus that we preach to a lost and dying world. Help us, God. Fill our hearts with compassion for those around us who need the Lord so badly. And God, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to be here. We do humble ourselves, God, as fellow sinners in need of your grace, in need of your righteousness. God, every single one of us, apart from Jesus, under the condemnation of your wrath. We thank you for the ransom that Jesus paid for those who believe. 
We ask, Lord, that you would cause us to treasure these things. God, that they would be the substance of our life. We pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to see your glory at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been in a series then talking about the gospel or the message of Jesus Christ. And we said that the gospel itself is a message. And that this message is the good news in Jesus Christ our Lord. That God has reconciled us through Christ to himself. Reconciled us from sin and from death. And what we've been saying is that the message really kind of has two sides of it. On one, on one hand, it's a very simple message. And we kind of boiled that down to say that the gospel message has these four basic elements. And that is God, man, Christ, response. And so if you will, the gospel is a message about God. It's a message about God being our, our, our uh, holy creator and our righteous judge. And it's also a message about man, that man has offended God, infinitely offended God by his willful rebellion against God. And so that man has fallen into sin, and that because of that he's in need of reconciliation. Otherwise, he's under the condemnation and the wrath of God. And so God is, is commanding all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And so in order for man to meet the requirements of God's righteousness, God has provided the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice and a redemption price, a ransom for the sin of man. And he's offered the life of Jesus to be credited to our account as the perfect righteousness of God himself. So that we can possess the righteousness of God apart from our own work of the law, apart from our own obedience, we can simply through faith receive the righteousness of God and be reconciled to him. And when we possess the kind of faith that reconciles us to God, we're going to respond in repentance from sin. And that's the gospel. It's really rather simple. Man has been separated from God because of sin. God has provided Christ to reconcile us to himself. We receive Christ through repentance and faith. Amen? And so that's the gospel in its core elements. And so we've also said, though, that the gospel is more than just that. It's something that's very complex. In fact, the whole Bible is written in a way to to reveal the gospel in all of its glory, to reveal the gospel in all of its aspects, and all of its facets. And God has done so many things in the cross and in the gospel that the Bible is filled with descriptions of those things and types and symbols and, and scenarios to present it and to explain it to us in ways that, that, uh, that, that only God can do. Amen? And so the Bible, or the gospel is complex in that sense. It's complex in, in, in that way. It's not, it's not just simply, you know, uh, one, two, three, and we're done. But in fact, the, 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 uh, the gospel is eschatological. The gospel concerns the end of all the ages. The, go- the gospel concerns everything that God has done in creating the universe. In fact, we've said that that, uh, God created the universe so that he could play out the gospel story on the hill at Calvary. So that he could manifest his love and his wisdom and his justice in ways there that he could never done any other way. And so it was absolutely necessary that Christ go to Calvary and that he live out the passion so that God could fulfill his righteousness in the way that he had planned from all eternity. And that this is the message that the gospel brings to us. And that the gospel is conferring on us a king. And it's calling us to come under the rule of that king. And to enter into his kingdom by willingly surrendering to his kingship. Amen? And not only that, but the gospel is warning us that if we don't come under the rule of this king, and we don't come under the rule of his kingdom, that he's going to come and forcibly put us under his rule. And of course, 
we're warned with the fiercest of all warnings that could possibly be given to men in the gospel. So the gospel, in that sense, is a warning. Amen? And so, if you will, there are these many facets, even though the, the, the basic message is, is rather simple at its core. Well, with that, we're turning to this passage in Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 through 28. And, uh, in this passage in Romans, we, we really have what I, I think is the most crystal clear description of the gospel in the Bible. And it really is Paul just expounding on what God has done in Christ. And, um, of course, there is a context to be considered. These, these verses find themselves in the middle of a context of Scripture where Paul is describing the gospel and he's describing God's purpose in Christ. And, uh, but it's in this little section where he really gets to the nuts and bolts of what the gospel is and how it is received and appropriated by, by believers. In fact, it is there that we're told it's by belief that we appropriate the gospel. And uh, so, if you will, uh, we don't want to divorce this section from the context we find it in, and I'm going to help you a little bit with that. But I want to tell you that this is one of the most important passages in the Bible for you as a Christian to know. And uh, especially because there's going to come a point in time when you need to be able to tell others about the gospel. And when you're telling others about the gospel, the information that's presented in these verses of Scripture in Romans 3, 19 through 28 are really the, the thing that you need to have mastered because these are the essential elements of the gospel. Okay? And so um, one other thing I want to mention that's kind of been on my heart, you know, I don't want anybody to get the impression that because, you know, we're going through all these infinite complexities of the gospel that I am saying in any way, shape, or form that one has to acknowledge, understand, and agree, and believe in every single one of these facets of the gospel in order to be saved. Okay? I am not saying that. (laughs) Okay? What I am saying is is that the gospel has many, many, many things that are related to it in the Bible and in the kingdom of God, okay? And as, as, as born-again Christians who are growing in the grace and knowledge of our God, these are the things we need to be learning and mastering, okay? But, but you know, somebody doesn't have to, to believe every single thing that we're talking about in order to be saved. I am not saying that, okay? And I want to make that clear. I am going to talk about what I think are the irreducible minimums that somebody has to believe in order to be saved. I'm going to talk about that at the end of our, of our lesson. Once we have kind of covered all the material, we've got a good grasp on what it is, then I want to talk to you about evangelism and how to share the gospel. And I want to talk to you about what does it really take for somebody to be saved in our interaction with them? What do they need to agree to? What do they need to believe? And if you will, there's an aspect of that that really is a supernatural thing, right? Because God is doing that work by regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And it's not something we can see. However, there will be certain evidences and things that that happen in our correspondence that will show to us good evidence that a person is being saved, okay? And those are the irreducible minimums I want to talk to you about. But if you try to describe... For instance, you know, I got when I got saved, I was in my living room having an argument with my wife. Hadn't been to church in five years. Okay? <laughs> so it's not like I was agreeing to a, a seven-point discourse on the gospel and, you know, had all my theology right. Are you with me? And so if you will, um, there is something supernatural that's going on in the heart when somebody gets saved. However, when that happens, if you will... There are some very specific elements of it that are, are irreducible. In other words, these elements have to happen or someone is not saved. Okay, I want to talk to you about that, but that's going to be toward the end of our lesson. So I just didn't want you to get the impression that, you know, here we are going through, you know, 20 weeks of teaching on the gospel and that we're trying to communicate that somebody has to swallow this whole uh, elephant in order to be saved. I'm not saying that. Okay, everybody with me on that? Okay, praise the Lord. Um, so with that, 
Let's read from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 28. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Amen. Okay, so that's the section of text that we're going to be looking at here for two weeks. And um, I want to just point out a few things to you. If you still have your Bible there, turn back to chapter 1. I want to show you a few things. As Paul is uh, writing this text of Romans... I want you to see that really the book of Romans is a technical discourse on on the doctrine of salvation and on the gospel. Okay, so Paul is going to write to the Romans and he is going to tell them from beginning to end what the gospel is, how it happens, what it's what the scenario that it's played out in, how it's how it's appropriated. Uh, what it means to the whole world, what it means to the Jew, what it means to the Gentile. And, and uh, he, he really does go through all the details. Not only that, but he describes to us in the latter chapters of the book how once you get saved, what, what God the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Not only that, he goes into a, a, a technical discourse on predestination and talking about the mind of God in eternity and how God has planned out uh, salvation from the beginning. He goes on to to describe how God has a future plan for Israel, that that plan is not yet fulfilled. He goes on to to, uh, uh, pass that to describe in the last four chapters of the book how we live out the Christian life. And uh, if you will, he gives us very specific commandments about how we're to carry out the Christian life and what does it look like if if we're we're, uh, now... uh, uh, Christians and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what should our life look like? Well, he, he sums it up and says it ought to be a life of love, and that if we love, we fulfill the law. And uh, what does that look like? Well, it looks like loving our neighbor as ourself. And then he describes what that looks like and how we uh, practice that in our life. One of the greatest sections in the Bible on love is Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. And so, if you will... There's a lot of instruction here, not only about the gospel and about salvation, but about Christian life and also about eschatological things, okay? Things that transcend just these days here in time and space, but deal with the end of all things, okay? So, but if you will, look back at chapter 1. Paul there says in the first few verses, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for... The gospel of God. See, Paul says, this is, this is what God sanctified me for. This is what God set me apart for. It was to preach the gospel. And so, if you will, he's going to unfold that for us. There, uh, he goes on, he says, look at verse uh, 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So here's Paul saying, right out of the, out of the gate, I was set apart for the gospel, and he says, let me tell you, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's how people get saved. And he says, not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. How do they get saved? And you have to understand something. In Paul's world, he's a Jew. He's a very zealous Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay? In Paul's worldview, there's two kinds of people, Jews and non-Jews. Okay? So when, when Paul says the Jew and the Gentile, he means everybody in the world. Okay? Because as far as he's concerned, that's everybody in the world. The Jews are the chosen people of God, right? The Gentiles are those who were not chosen of God in ages past, right? But now through the gospel, both the Jew and the Gentile have the gospel, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Amen? So if you look at it this way, in chapter 1, Paul's giving this introduction and discussion of, here I'm about to present the gospel and then in chapter, at chapter 18, there is a break in what Paul is writing. And he goes into a lengthy discourse, which lasts between chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 19, which is where we're going to be taken up and, and moving forward. That whole section of text there, Paul is establishing the guilt of both the Gentile and the Jew before God. And so, if you will, verses, uh, if you look at your outline there on page 68, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is an introduction. Chapter 1, verse 18 through 320 is the condemnation of the world, the need for God's righteousness. And there in uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul is establishing the guilt of the Gentiles. And, of course, he does that in no uncertain terms. He's describing that they... They have uh, completely ignored God. They're not thankful to God. They have, instead of worshiping God, they've begun to worship the creation instead of the creator. And that they've fashioned uh, idols. And they've gone off into idolatry. And that idolatry has led to sexual immorality and all kinds of impurity and debauchery and, 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 uh, and wickedness and evil, which Paul names their, their list of sins. Okay? In verses uh, 29 through 32. <clears throat> But if you will there, in that section, uh, verses 18 through 32, he's establishing the guilt of the Gentile before God. Then if you, if you look with me, of course he introduces the concept of the wrath of God in chapter 1, verse 18 as well. There he says, for the wrath of God is being revealed, right, against all mankind. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so he's introduced this concept of wrath as well. Because as soon as he gets to chapter 2, he's going to introduce the concept of judgment. Okay? And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, Paul is talking about the judgment of God. And he's describing the fact that God has principles by which he judges people. And he establishes there that God is going to judge all men. And uh, <clears throat> if you will, there he says that there are certain kinds of revelation that men have. Some have only the revelation of their conscience by which to make moral decisions. Others have special revelation from God, which brings light to the eyes and gives a standard by which God judges. And, and if you will, when he continues on in chapter 2 from verses 17 all the way through uh, chapter 3 verse 19... Paul establishes the guilt of the Jew. And he's describing there that they have the law of God. They have the special revelation of God and what God requires. And nevertheless, they have all failed to fulfill what God has required. And so, if you will, that brings us to this place where Paul is saying, look, the whole world is guilty before God. And under God's wrath, under condemnation from the Almighty God, who is the creator of all things. And so he's establishing the great need for righteousness. He's establishing the great need for all men to be reconciled to God. You know, if I were here trying to explain this for the next three weeks, 
I could not do a sufficient job to explain how serious this matter is. We are talking about the fact that every single person that's ever lived in the history of mankind, that will ever live in the future history of mankind, is under the condemnation of the wrath of the Almighty God. And that if they're not reconciled to God on God's terms, they are going to be destroyed by God after being judged by Him for their rebellion. You know, in our world, we make such a light thing of sin. Right? Most people don't even know what sin is. Right? Now, if you've been in a good Bible-believing church, you probably have a pretty good idea what sin is. Right? Some people know what sin is and they don't care. They don't give a rip what sin is. But let me tell you, there's coming a day when they're going to care. And I cannot describe to you how severe that is going to be. There are no words that fit that description. The, the, the wrath of God is something infinitely in, ir, in, incomprehensible to the human mind. How severe and tragic and doomful that day is. Are you with me? So suffice it to say that I, I can't describe to you what the horror of hell is like. It would be far beyond any description I could give. Are you with me? And let me tell you, it is a reason for us to fear the Holy God and to fear His wrath. Let me tell you, you don't want to go there. <laughs> if there's anything in the world you don't want, that's it. Are you with me? And so that's how serious these things are, family. This isn't a fairy tale. This is reality. You don't think God's revealing His wrath? Just look around the world. Look at sin and death and dying and suffering. Look at the horrors of war and, and whatever's been happening on the face of the planet as far back as written history can record. You're seeing the wrath of God in this little, little manifest way that's happening in time and space. Okay? All of the suffering that's gone on in the ages of human history is a result of sin. And it is, a, it is exactly what God said would happen. He said, in the day you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And that is exactly what has happened. There hasn't been a human being alive that hasn't died. Except for two. <laughs> right? They, they had a special circumstance going on. Sorry, you're not one of them. <laughs> right? But you get my, you get my meaning. These things are severe. They're serious. They're, there isn't a more serious topic. There isn't a more serious message that we need to know and understand. There isn't a more serious message that we need to communicate to people we love and people we don't love. Are you with me? I mean, this is the crux of the whole matter. This is it. And this is what Paul is saying. Okay, so if you will... I want you to think about what Paul brings up here in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and following. I mean, look at verse 19. He says, now, we, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Okay? Now, I want you to understand, that is a summarizing statement from Paul for basically the whole first three chapters of the book of Romans. He's summarizing there where he established that all men were under the condemnation of God and that they're going to be held accountable to God in judgment. Okay? And so he's, he's summing it up. He's saying, you know, not only is the Gentile guilty before God of their idolatry, but let me tell you, the Jew as well is guilty before God because of their disobedience to the law of God. And this is what he means when he says, we know that the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who is that? The Jews, right? And, and he's saying that it, whatever the law spoke to the Jews, right, that <clears throat> it closed their mouth and made them accountable to God along with the rest of the whole world. You see, Paul had already established 
that the Gentile was guilty before God because their conscience, the light of their conscience was there either accusing or defending them whenever they made moral choices and moral decisions. You find that in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. Okay? Paul has already established the fact that men have everything they need to, to do the right thing, to make a right moral choice, but all have failed. And like he says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? And so, <clears throat> okay, um, want to be sure and follow your questions here. The book of Romans is a comprehensive and technical discourse on salvation by grace through faith in Christ and on the gospel message. In the above outline, we get a picture of the foundation Paul has been building in order to deliver the gospel message to us. In chapter 1, he tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and he then tells us that it reveals the righteousness of God. Now, don't forget that. Paul says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So whatever we ought to expect to learn about the gospel, right, we ought to learn what the righteousness of God is because it's being revealed in the gospel. Are you with me? Okay. He begins to establish the case of why God's righteousness is important and necessary, explaining that both Gentile and Jew are under the condemnation of God and in desperate need to be justified. Okay? You see, Paul's going to introduce this term, justified. And you understand that the term justified is a legal term. It's a term dealing with law. It's a term dealing with court proceedings and judgment. And justification is that state wherein somebody stands when they have been either acquitted, right, or somehow uh, committed as not guilty by the court, right? Justification is that place where somebody stands when their deeds have been justified. Are you with me? In a court of law. So if we were going to take somebody before a court, we would seek to either condemn them or justify them. So if you will, here's another way to think about justification. It's the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Okay. Now, it's important to understand what the Bible means by justification because um, just because we have a, uh, an English word, justification, and it means something in the context of our culture, may not mean that that's exactly what it means in the Bible. Are you with me? So if you will, we're going to talk about that at length. We're going to understand what justification in the Bible means. But we're going to get a really good picture of it right here in this text. So then, in chapter 3, verses 19 through 28, Paul explains this righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel in very certain terms. Okay? Paul's not confused about the message he's preaching. He's going to tell us exactly what the message is, and he's going to tell us certainly how one becomes justified before God. Okay? There's no gray matter here. It's a crystal clear issue with Paul how somebody is made right with God. And it's, it is of immense importance, is it not, having Paul having already established that the whole world is accountable for God for its rebellion against God. And that the whole world is under the condemnation and wrath of God and that there is a need for the righteousness of God. So then he's going to describe to us what that righteousness is and how it is appropriated. Okay? So... Uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that is, the Jews. And, and whatever the law says. You get his meaning here? Everything that the law says. Now, what is the law? Okay, I want to tell you what the law is here in this context right here. The law in this verse means the Torah. It means the first five books of the Bible. Okay? specifically the commandments that are contained within the first five books of the Bible, which really kind of begin in the latter chapters of Exodus and end in the latter chapters of Leviticus and then are summed up again in the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? However, you need to kind of get this because Paul's going to use the word law again in the next verse 
And it takes on a slightly different meaning. I'll show you that. But the point is, is that when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the commandments of God contained in the books of Moses. Okay? And, and so he says, look, whatever the law says, it says to the Jew. Okay? And he is saying, uh, having already established that the Gentile is guilty before God. This is this thing you have to pick up when you start reading at chapter 3, verse 19. Paul has already established the guilt of the Gentile. Then through chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's establishing the guilt of the Jew. And so when he sums it all up, he says, look, whatever the law said, it closed the mouth of not only the Jew, but also the rest of the world. Okay? Because when the law came, God revealed what his righteous standard was. In very certain terms, he revealed it. Okay? And so, if you will, he says there that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so looking at this verse 19, Paul having made his case that both Gentile and Jew are guilty before God, this is his final concluding remark stating that they are all liable and accountable to God. Don't miss that. When you read Romans 3.19, don't miss this point. Okay? That every mouth is closed before God and all the world accountable to God because of what the law says. Okay? Now, how many mouths is every mouth? All of them. Every single one of them both Jew and Gentile. Do you see that clearly in the context of Paul's writing? Okay? Okay, so don't miss that. So if you're ever wondering if there ever was a person that was somehow outside of the accountability to God through the law, this verse should make it really clear to you. Okay? There isn't anybody that's outside of the accountability to God and His holy righteous standard and outside of the judgment of God. Okay? Paul says it in other places, right? It's appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. You live your life, you die, you face God. That's what we mean by meet thy maker. Right? That's what's going to happen when you die. You're going to meet your maker. And you're going to be judged. And books are going to be opened. Right? And we're all going to be judged according to the things that are written in the books. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says about the judgment. Amen? Paul's already told us this in the context of Romans in chapter 2 and verse 16. He said the very same thing. Um... In establishing the extent of this accountability, that is the accountability that everyone has before God, he states that every mouth may be closed and the whole world may become accountable to God. Now what does Paul mean by this? That every mouth may be closed. Okay? What does he mean by that? Well, by this he surely means that they have no defense or excuse to speak of the guilt of their sin but that both their conscience and God's law testify against them. Okay? So Paul already established back in chapter 2 that both the Jew and the Gentile had the light of conscience and that whenever somebody committed a uh, moral indecency, that their conscience was there either accusing or defending them of that. Are you with me? And then he goes on to say that God has presented his law Right? And through his law has made crystal clear what the moral guidelines are, what his perfect standard of righteousness is. He's explained that very clearly in his law. And so, if you will, he says that every mouth is closed. Well, what does that mean? That means that when you come to stand before Almighty God, and there you are in front of God, and God says, What about this sin? Okay? You don't have a word to speak in your own defense. Why? 
Because you've sinned against God a thousand times if you've done it once. Amen? And, you know, isn't anything else going to matter on that day? You're going to be standing before Almighty God. And you're going to be judged by Almighty God. By the way, He sees down to the bottom of the heart. Right? And He is He who searches hearts and minds. Amen? There isn't anything that God does not see. Even in the deepest, darkest place of your heart, God knows every thought. He knows it before you think it. Amen? No wonder we have open theism. (laughs) Right? Men are looking for a way to, to move God outside of the inside of the heart, aren't they? Why? Because there their conscience tells them again and again, what about God? What about God? What about God? Right? Well, look what he goes on to say. Verse 20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now this is a huge statement. Paul is, is telling us fundamentally what the law does. What its purpose is. Okay? In regard to being justified... In God's sight. You see where he introduces the word justified here? He says, look, everybody's accountable to God. Everybody's mouth is closed, he says. And and nobody's going to be justified in God's, God's sight by the works of the law. Okay? So, I want to ask you this question. This is on your handout there. Uh, let's see, which one is it? Question number eight. Is it possible to be justified before God by obeying His law? Okay, I want to answer this question for you. Is it possible? Yes. It's possible. In other words, if you perfectly obeyed the law of God from the day you were born until the day you died and completely fulfilled it, okay, God would have no reason to condemn you. Are you with me? Because condemnation is the just penalty for sin, and sin is the transgression of the law. So if you don't transgress the law, you can be justified in the sight of God. However, nobody's capable of that. Why? Well, like he tells us in chapter 5, verse 12 and following, through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, because all sinned. Right? So Paul is saying... Nobody's going to be justified before God by the works of the law because nobody works the law. Are you with me? So he's basically saying it's impossible. So you're right in saying, no, it's not possible. I'm glad. That's what you should say. Okay? And it's, you know, one of these theological arguments, you know, can someone actually be justified, you know, by the works of the law? And of, of course, sure, Jesus is. But he's the only one. Why? Because he's the only one born of a virgin. Right? Everybody else else has a human father. And through that human father was imputed sin. Amen? So what do we all do by nature? We sin. Why? Because we're a bunch of sinners. That's what sinners do. They sin. And when they sin, they bring the just consequence of that sin, which is wrath and condemnation from God. And this is a very good thing. You know the reason why God judges sin, right? Because he's so good. That's why God judges sin. If God didn't judge sin, he wouldn't be good. Are you with me? It's the goodness of God that causes him to judge sin. It's because he's so holy and righteous and perfect that he breaks out in wrath against it. Are you with me? Okay. So then... um, In regard to being justified in God's sight, Paul again established the guilt of the entire world with the reference, no flesh. That is, no human being. Look what Paul's saying. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Okay? So now, first he was saying that every mouth was closed and the whole world accountable to God. And now he's saying... 
by obeying the law or by obedience, nobody in the whole world is going to be justified in the sight of God. So imagine what Paul is saying. This is a, this is a thing of utter despair. So you come along, Mr. Preacher, and you tell us we're all accountable to God. You tell us none of us have a defense because our conscience has, has testified against us, and the law of God has testified against us, and now you tell us that by doing the right thing, none of us can be justified. That's a pretty hopeless situation. You better believe it is. It's more hopeless than I could possibly describe to you. So, the next time you start boasting about how good you are before God, remember Romans 3.20 that nobody's going to be justified in the sight of God by the works of the law, or by doing what is right, or by doing the right thing, or by being a good Christian, or plug in any terms you want about obedience to God there. None of those things will justify you before God. Why? Because you've already sinned. And when you sinned, you incurred the infinite wrath of God for the first time you did it. You see, that's how holy God is. God is so holy and absolutely pure and righteous altogether, that one sin, the just condemnation for one sin, is to shut you out of his presence forever and ever and ever and ever. And when God does that, he is perfectly good and perfectly righteous and perfectly just, and that is the acceptable right penalty for one sin. And family, we've got to see that. We've got to agree with that. Look, when God meets out a penalty for, for sin and he says it's hell forever, that is something that if we love righteousness, we ought to rejoice in the idea that there is such a thing as the antonym to God's glory and his holiness and his purity. Are you with me? And that will cause us to hate sin like God hates sin. Are you with me? And it will cause us to seek for mercy, right? Like God seeks for mercy. Are you with me? Because the last thing we want, even for their, our worst enemy, is the wrath of God. Trust me, you don't want the wrath of God on the person you hate worse than anybody in the whole world, which ought to be nobody, <laughs> right? Are you with me? But the point is just that, let me tell you something. It, it, it's something of incomprehensible horror that you can't possibly imagine, and it has to be that way. Because God is incomprehensibly holy and perfect and good and righteous. And his justice demands that kind of a penalty for sin. I don't like it. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I don't like the fact that the whole world is accountable to God. And under his condemnation and wrath. It's a, it's a very fearful thing for me to think about. It's a desperate plight. It's a desperate situation. And, and, you know, the more I learn about it, the more horrified I am by it. But the more I realize that the gospel is the remedy. And the more I see how Jesus is the provision of God to meet what his penalties, what his penal sanctions in the law are. Because God provided Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. God provided exactly what it takes to be reconciled to God. And let me tell you, he couldn't make it any easier than it is. Right? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He's not telling you to walk on your knees 60 miles. Right? Or whatever kind of penance you want to dream up. Right? I mean, could the, could, could the message be any easier? Could it be any more simple? There's a dying lamb. Look to him. It's like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert. Right? So that those were bitten by, afflicted by the venom of sin. They look at the serpent and what happens? They're healed. Right? Was it hard? Was it hard for the sinners in the desert to get a healing from their snake bite? No, no, it wasn't. It was there for them all to see. Right? So is Jesus, the Lamb. Well, <clears throat> these, he says, that, that is no flesh, no human being, 
cannot be justified by obedience to the law. Rather, that their failure to keep it establishes what sin is, transgression of his law. Look what it says here in the text of Scripture. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So how do we know what sin is? We know what sin is when we see the law of God. Right? Because the law of God says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So we know that whenever we take God's name in vain, we've what? We've transgressed his law. And that's what sin is. Sin is a transgression of the law. Or, or when, when, the, when the law of God says, honor your father and your mother. Right? And we dishonor our father or our mother. We transgress the law of God. Or when the Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or thou shalt not steal. Or thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or his house or his donkey or anything that belongs to thy neighbor. When you do that thing, you transgress the law of God. Amen? Or when God says, keep the Sabbath day holy. And you don't keep the Sabbath day holy. You omit to do what God says you ought to do. You transgress the law of God. Are you with me? And so, if you will, the law gives us the knowledge of sin. It defines what sin is for us. It shows us what sin is so that we can all see it. Are you with me? Mankind has failed not only at, the pre, uh, at violating what the law forbids, its penal sanctions. Remember what that is, the penal sanctions. I want to tell you again about that. Remember when we were studying the atonement? And we learned that the law had penal sanctions. What does that mean? It means that there's a penalty inflicted upon those who don't uh, meet the requirement of the sanction. Right? So, for instance, God, not only did God say, thou shalt not commit adultery, but a few pages later he says, if you catch somebody committing adultery, what do you do? Well, you take them outside the city and you stone them. You kill them. Right? Because fornication and immorality is a sin of that severe nature that God says, we ought to take you outside the city and stone you. Right? Well, that's a penal sanction in the law. Are you with me? But the law also has preceptive requirements. You know how David says, oh, how I love thy precepts. Right? Well, he's talking about the preceptive requirements in the law. So, for instance, the law might say something like this. Well, if you're walking along the road and your neighbor's donkey's falling in the hole, help him out, man! Right? And so the law says, look, you ought to help your neighbor out. Right? And, and there are many, many, many examples that we could give. But God is requiring of us specific certain kinds of behavior which shows that we love our neighbor as ourself. Right? And, and so... These are perceptive requirements. So the law has these two sides. It has things which it forbids us to do, right? And it has things which it bids us to do. And if you will, in order to fulfill the law, we've got to do both. So when we violate these two, right, we call these sins of commission, right? And we call these sins of omission, We've omitted what the law has told us to do. Or we've committed what it told us not to do. Are you with me? Two kinds of sin. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Why? Because the law has two kinds of requirements. It has penal sanctions and it has preceptive requirements. Are you with me? This is very important when we talk about being justified before God. Okay? Because it's not only the death of Jesus that justifies us before God, but His life. You see, the death of Jesus covers the penal sanctions, but it is the life of Jesus that has met every preceptive requirement that God has required. And that life of Jesus is imputed to us through faith. It's credited to us as righteousness. Amen? Don't forget that. Two sides of the law. Two parts of justification. You have a question there, Kate? Okay.
Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, let me think through that. Her question is um, about the whole law, and is there ever uh, a, a reason why maybe we didn't have enlightenment to a certain part of it um, or not, and what maybe even would the law say about that? Is there an excuse for those of us who don't, don't realize what it says, or maybe we've done something unintentionally? Would that fall in that classification as well? Well, I want to answer that briefly by just saying that I think the law makes it really clear that even sin that's committed unintentionally is a sin against God, has incurred his wrath against the individual and even against the whole nation of Israel, so that the priests had a regular ceremony for uh, making a sacrifice of atonement for unintentional sins. And, and, of course, there's probably about four or five different ways to come at that whole thing. Um, but I think, um, well, I don't want to say anything that I really couldn't back up with Scripture, but I don't think that God lets us off the hook for ignorance. In other words, um, just because we're unaware that a certain law exists doesn't mean that it's still the law of God, and if we do it, we have violated that law. Um, it's incumbent upon us to know what is good and right. It's incumbent upon us to seek the face of the Lord and to know what he expects. It's incumbent upon us to know, in this case, how is righteousness uh, 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 appropriated in our life. And, and I could boil that down to, to brass tacks for you, if you will, that even the Jew who had the whole embodiment of the law really couldn't be saved by obeying that law, which is Paul's point from Romans 2.17 all the way to Romans 3.19, but that even the Jew had to live by faith or trust in the atonement that God would provide in the Messiah. And so that now that's happened, God has gone out to the whole world, and he's, he's simply said to the whole world, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Right? And so God has a certain requirement of righteousness that he is requiring of the whole world. What is it? To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get to the other side, when we get to the judgment, nobody's going to be able to stand before God and say, well, I didn't know there was a Jesus Christ. Because there's only one way to be saved. Okay? And it's not through the works of the law. In other words, you can't obey your way into heaven. Why? Because you've already sinned against God and incurred his wrath. Right? So well, this gets into the whole question of, well, what about people who've never heard the gospel? Well, I'm going to answer that question for you in a much more lengthy discourse. But the point is just that, you know, ignorance of the gospel is not an excuse for, for not believing the gospel. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, um, I'm going to need a lot more time and a lot more words to explain that to you. But, but the, the fact of the matter is, God doesn't let us off the hook for ignorance. And if my answer to the, that question was not sufficient, please let me know, and I will, I will give a written, well-thought-through answer for that, because I think it's a really important thing, and I'm, I thank you for bringing it up. Another one here. Absolutely. It, it, it does. And, and in the little section in Romans 2, actually it's verses 1 through 16, it makes it really clear what God's principles for judgment are. But if you will, the Gentiles have a certain amount of light. Okay, in theology, it's referred to a lot of times as the light of conscience. Every man knows he's not supposed to kill his brother. Right? Well, how does he know that? <laughs> you know, how, how, did, how did Cain supposed to know he wasn't supposed to kill his brother why was he ashamed of what he did right um and and the reason why is cain's cain's conscience bore witness against him right and and this is paul's paul's description of of why ultimately the gentiles are guilty before god because their conscience has been there all along either accusing them or defending them of the things that they've done okay and, of course, the more knowledge and the more light that your conscience has, the more informed it is about what sin is, right? And the, the, the opposite is also true. The less and less that your conscience is informed, 
the less and less that you have of a knowledge of the truth. This is like the American culture right now, right? What's happening in American culture? Oh, the knowledge of God is being devoid from us. We hardly, we hardly know it anymore. So uh, John MacArthur wrote a book. It's called The Vanishing Conscience. What's his point? His point is the less and less you inform the conscience in a culture, the further and further from God they get. The less and less they realize it's wrong, right? So pe- people are committing sexual immorality all over the place. Why? Well, to them, they had no fear of God before their eyes. They don't realize that God said, thou shalt not do that. They don't realize that that's a violation of their marriage covenant. Young people today don't realize that premarital sex is a violation and a defilement of the marriage bed. They have no thought toward that. They have no thought toward the fact that that one day I'm going to commit myself to a specific individual. And every time I violate that now, I've defiled that relationship. No thought toward that whatsoever. Why? Because it's not in their conscience. It's not in their mind. They're not informed by that. And if they are, they think it's some religious rule they want to divorce themselves from. Right? So, if you will... Oh, man, I'm chasing rabbits. (laughs) Um, That's a great question. And, And quite frankly, there are aspects of that question that are are rather plaguing, I think, to theology. However, what Paul does do is he goes on and he makes it crystal clear that nobody can be justified in the sight of God by obedience to the law, but that the righteousness of God is available for those who believe. And this whole thing about what righteousness is, obviously we're going to get to next week. But let me just end this little section here, and then we'll knock off. Um, The law, with all of its high and holy commands, has indeed caused the sin of mankind to be seen with utmost clarity, and it condemns us all as guilty before God's judgment bar. Okay, so, look, the Ten Commandments alone has everybody in this room guilty before God. Are you with me? There isn't a one person in this room that hasn't violated one of the Ten Commandments. Right? Although we've probably almost violated them all. Right? I don't know your life and you don't know mine, but we know what's in a man or a woman. Right? And so the point is is that this is what the law does. It condemns us. Because here's God's perfect, holy, righteous standard. Right? I am the Lord that brought you out of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? So every time you sin, you put something else before God. And you break the first commandment. Because now God's, whatever you're doing is more important to you than God being God. You with me? And, and so, so what's happening then is we're under the condemnation of God because of that sin. Okay, And so this is what holds the whole world accountable before God. And when the law came, it caused us to see in crystal clear terms what God's moral standard for righteousness was. God laid it out, man. He gave us all the sanctions and all the precepts. Right? He says, here, don't do these things, and I want you to do all these things. Right? And so we see with crystal clarity how it is that we've sinned against God. That's what the law did. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It shows us what sin is. It teaches us what sin is. I want to give you another scripture that explains that real clearly. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. It tells us the purpose of the law. Okay, and the purpose of the law, basically, in Paul's writing to the Galatians there, he says, is to condemn you. It's to condemn you as a guilty sinner so that it will drive you to Christ. Right? The law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. How does it do that? Right? Well, it whacks us on the knuckles of conviction every time we violate it. Are you with me? And it's and it says to you, what will you do now? You're under the condemnation of God. How shall you flee Where shall you find a place to hide from the Almighty God? And the answer to that question, nowhere. So what can I do but helplessly throw myself before the cross and plead for mercy? 
where God gives it by the bucket load. Amen? And so everybody, through the knowledge of the law, knows what their sin is and realizes that they're in a hopeless and desperate state. And that hopeless and desperate state is where every single person has to arrive in order to be saved. They've got to realize that they are under the condemnation of God. And the only way that they can be saved from that is through the cross. It's through the blood of the cross. Amen? Okay. Well, let's knock off right there. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we thank you uh, for this text of Scripture. I pray that you would uh, uh, remind us to read this through the week, to consider its words, its thoughts, its concepts. I pray, God, that we would master this section of text, every one of us Christians here, so that, God, we would know the substance of the gospel and we know where it is in the Bible and we know why it says what it says. Give us understanding, I pray, of this text. And, and Lord, I just pray that for those difficult questions that we may have uh, about it, that you would give us further enlightenment, God, as we seek your face and we seek to know and understand your glory and your beauty at the cross. We thank you for the privilege of this time to worship together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One thing I want to say, if, if any of this is confusing to anybody, please, by all means, write me a question. If you want me to answer it publicly, I will answer that question publicly before the class. I just need a week to think about it. Or if you want to answer it privately... Just email it to me or hand it to me and just ask for a private answer, okay? But I want to answer all your questions, so have a good week.